So Colossians chapter 2, we're going to attempt uh, to get from 11 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 23. I titled this message, Rules and Regs. Many of you guys have heard rules and regs, rules and regulations, CCNR, deed restrictions. You've, I mean, we've heard things like this, uh, no littering, ordinance, whatever. Um, I heard this a lot uh, when I was growing up. And we live in a world where there's every year more laws, more rules passed, more whatever. Um, it's a little bit like this sometimes in the church where there is a, there's a culture sometimes where you come to Christ and you go find a church to try and fit in and there's a lot of stuff there that you're like, hey, I didn't even know you had to do that. I didn't even know that was a, uh, a, a, a thing that's in the Bible. Well, it's not, but you'd think it was because of how many people subscribe to it. The, the rules and regs, when you look up these definitions... It's kind of confusing because one identifies itself with the other one. So I'll read for you what Webster says rule means. One of a set of explicit or understood regulations. Okay? Uh, principles governing conduct within a particular activity or sphere. Regulation. A rule or directive made and maintained by an authority. So they basically define one another. It's like responsibility. I used to have to copy responsibility in sixth grade when I'd get my name on the board with a check. A lot of times it came with a second check. Um, they'd make me write responsibility, the full definition, ten times. I can still repeat it to you. But the, one of the definitions was the act of being responsible. I'm like, why do you define a word with the word? Exactly. They do it all the time. That Webster man, whoever he was, he's wealthy. So at least his family is. I don't know about you, but my, my nature, when, when people say, hey, here are the rules, my nature, uh, especially when I was a younger kid, was to go, well, how can I break it? I mean, that's just my nature. That's just who I, I'm like, rules don't apply to me. That's why I spent so much time in the principal's office uh, in junior high and high school. But since growing up in the 80s, I used to go to um, theme parks in Florida, uh, I was very blessed to be able to go to Disney World as a little kid before Disney World became what it is today. And we would go to all these theme parks, and one of them was SeaWorld. And I am very, very into three or four different animals. One of them is a killer whale, the orca. We knew him as Shamu. I started to figure out that Shamu was the name of lots of them because I was like, how can Shamu still be alive? I just took my kids to see Shamu four years ago. Like This whale is 65 years old. No, it isn't. They just keep calling it Shamu. They all look the same. However, when I was a kid in the 80s, you could feed this thing. I walked right up and threw a fish right in this thing's mouth. And you'd think putting an 8,000-pound, the most athletic thing that's in the ocean, and there's a lot of athletic things in the ocean, next to a 9-year-old kid with a fish in his mouth, that's probably not the best idea since their eyes are like way back here. I know you're going to be shocked by this. Finally, someone was attacked by a killer whale. Um, ironically, not in, not in, uh, in, in SeaWorld uh, San Diego, the other two. So they don't let you anywhere near it anymore. Still cool to see it, jump out and, and you know, splash everybody. But every, everything that we used to be able to do at these places in the 80s is now you can't do it anymore. Can't do this, can't do that. Can't. I mean, they just, there's just so many more rules. And I get it. There's, there's going to be, as, as populations increase and as accidents happen, there's going to be more rules. But that is not the case in the New Testament. Jesus doesn't keep adding rules. Jesus doesn't keep adding law. We do. 
And, and Paul's trying to get these, these uh, Colossian Christians to understand, why are you going back to something that was a foretaste, something that pointed forward to the real deal? He says in verse 11, In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins, of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism, which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. A couple of things about this. What was the purpose of this? What was the purpose of Old Testament circumcision? It was a covenant. It was a physical act that showed something. It showed obedience, but it also showed a physical thing. It was a cutting away of the flesh. Our flesh is sinful. No good lies in it. The Gnostics were teaching them that anything physical, everything physical, anything that has mass and volume, any matter is bad. Therefore, Jesus couldn't possibly be God. That's what they're telling these guys because Jesus was physical. All spirit is good. He's saying... Guys, you, you've, you are physically, this is a law deal. It, it, it no longer applies. There is a spiritual circumcision. There is a spiritual cutting away of the flesh. There is a separation that, ha, that needs to happen between the old man and this new man. Old woman, new woman. He's clearly talking about something that's spiritual. In, the, in Christian baptism, when someone goes under the water, it's a symbol of both death and burial. That you go and you are being put into the, in, a, in a sense in the grave and when you come back out you are being resurrected back to life through the physical, through the spiritual rebirth that God's Holy Spirit is able to accomplish through Christ. In verse 13 he's showing us that the only life you and I have, the only possible way to have this life is through the forgiveness of sins, is through Christ's work. Once again, the working of God. That's what raised you from the dead. You are not able to keep the law. You are not able, even if you've been circumcised, even if you're Jewish, even if some of these guys, some of these people probably were loosely Jewish, but mostly we're talking about a, a Greek, a, a, a Gentile church. You being dead in your trespasses, he has made alive. We always have to remember that. The only life we have, sometimes we get on autopilot. Sometimes we get in, into a, um, a lane where we're like, hey, I'm doing really good for God. I'm, me and him are like, I'm really, I'm doing pretty awesome right now. And we have to remember that any life there is, any possible life is once again Christ's life. I, um, I've gotten a lot of mileage out of these two flowers for those of you who have been here uh, in the last... This one's looking really bad. I keep keeping, I, I have them in the pulpit here, so they're not even outside in the weather. But this is how much life I'm able to achieve in two weeks' time. Maybe it's been three weeks. They're starting, they're starting to kind of rot on the side. Broken in half. There's no life. I draw my life. I draw my sustenance. I draw everything from the vine that I had nothing to do with, that I got grafted into, that I got put into, surgically put into, if you will. So verse 14, he says, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, 
which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. I underlined nailed it, because everybody in this culture says, nailed it. Jesus nailed it. Okay, that's not even a bad reference. I looked it up in Urban Dictionary, which is filthy, and they have cleared nailed it for me to say publicly here. Jesus is the one that nailed it. Okay? So we have zero way of wiping out the requirement. And the requirement for me and you, if we want to go another route around Jesus, is perfect law keeping. We didn't nail that one. We got nailed by that one. He's the one that nailed your sin and my sin to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths. And I want to really spend the bulk of our time here in this, in this more, what we would probably call more legalism in this chapter than, uh, than the first part of it. There is so many things that human beings struggle with. It's hard to explain without charts, literally. But something that we really struggle with is this idea that once we've been a Christian a little while, that we don't bring something else to the table, that we don't like, kind of like add something to the, to the family of God on our own without the Lord. I love what Ironside says about this, um, this, the verses I just read. He says, the expression, the handwriting of ordinances could only be properly used to refer to the Ten Commandments, which we were told was given by the handwriting of God. That's the handwriting requirement Paul's talking about. Sinfulness of our nature has, been, uh, has made our disobedience to the law a foregone conclusion, and therefore the law condemned us to death. But the law has now been taken out of the way and no longer hangs over us as an unfulfilled obligation. Christ nailed the law to the cross. He died on the cross. All the principalities, Satan and his minions, thought they might win as Jesus was being punished for sin and weren't smart enough to know who he really was, apparently. As Jesus rose from the grave, he triumphed over the powers and the principalities in all the universe. There is something in human beings that loves to look down on someone when they're not living up to the standard of the person that is throwing the standard on them. So the one that's, that's judging the person that says, well, you need to be doing this. And have you done that? Have you tried this? Oh, you're struggling? Have you tried what I'm What's made me so good? When I was 19, I decided to intern at a, uh, at a church in Chicagoland, and the youth pastor told me to enroll in Bible college. And I had bad grades, and his dad was the president, so he kind of like fast-tracked my application, which was how I got through a lot of things in life um, that required book, uh, book and test taking. And I remember when I went to this college, I had to sign this thing called the Student Life Guide. It was really thick. You had to read it, and you had to agree to this and this and this. You're not going to stay up till 12 o'clock. You won't be back in the dorm by this time. Uh, I mean, it was really, really pretty legalistic. I th- I'm pretty sure in 1996, when I filled this app out, that girls that were there um, could not wear pants. Okay? This is not 55 years back. This is the late 90s. And I remember that the student life guide, to me, I was like, man, the, the student life guide seems a little more important than this book. And who wrote this student life guide? Well, the people that run this college did. And I remember also 
thinking, because I, I didn't, I, I took a couple of years off of school, but when I went back to this college, I remember my friends were all seniors that, that went to this school, um, my senior friends from high school. They were all seniors, and I was only a sophomore at this school. And I remember seeing in most of them a bitterness. They were very, very bitter. They were very angry at so many things, and they, they didn't necessarily say what it was, but I could see that the standard from the college was different than the standard in the scriptures, that we were oftentimes dealing with kids more harshly than the grace of God, very much so. And so there was, once again, there's nothing wrong with telling kids, hey, we have, we have a few rules if you're going to live in downtown Chicago and you're going to be 18 to 22 years of age. Fine, that's cool. But don't make me sign something that says, I will adhere to this, this, and this. Just make me sign the Bible. Just make me sign, hey, just that you're going you're gonna to walk in grace and that you're going you're gonna to live for the Lord and, and do life his way. That would have been more than enough. But these, these rules that were in the student life guide, some of them were really aggressive. And um, I remember thinking, so this is how I become a pastor oh, wait, no, I have to go to Dallas Theological Seminary after this. I got to get a four-year degree, and then I got to go get them. Who says that I have to? Who, who says that that's the way? Um, I love, there's a, um, a guy uh, named Gary North who says this. He goes, so you want to become a minister. First, however, you need training. You think you should go to seminary. A word of warning, seminaries are staffed by people who learned to write term papers in their teens and early 20s and who then decided to parlay that particular skill into a lifetime of employment. Seminaries are not staffed by successful ex-pastors. Successful pastors remain in ministry, in actual churches. Seminaries are staffed by baptized college professors who chose to specialize in a field so obscure that no college has a sufficient number of students to make hiring them close to paying off. Now think about that. He's not trying to mock them. There are some good seminaries in this world, but the seminaries that I have looked into and some of the things that I've seen these guys teach, first of all, once again, many of them, not pastors. How can you be a pastor? How can you be a non-pastor and teach people how to be a pastor? And I, I illustrate that I say this to, to throw this real-life story at you. Right after I planted this church, um, I went to uh, California to uh, pick up a car for Calvary Tucson. And the guy that I bought it from, I, I found out, um, it was like trying to, to pry a secret out of him. I found out he was a pastor. I had to work real hard to figure that out. It was kind of weird. And he picks me up at the airport, and I go, wow, you're a pastor. That's cool. I just planted a church. He goes, okay. And I go, um, so tell me about it. Tell me about how you got into it. He's like, well, after college, I went to seminary, and then they placed me here. I go, wow. So, like, anything else? Yeah, he goes, it's okay. He goes, if I had it to do over again, I'd probably pick a different job. I'm like, you're not a bus driver, man. You're in ministry. But this is the point. Seminary stamped this guy and said, pastor, pastor, pastor. Did you ever ask Jesus if he wanted you to go into the ministry and be miserable? No. He, this guy was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. He talked about the job like it had a gun to his head like the pastor had had a gun to his head. It was horrible. Needless to say, I was really, really like, wow, I guess I'm looking for something horrible here. I guess it's going to be a horrible job and a horrible time. It's not a job. Pastoral ministry is not a job. 
If you are called to do it, go do it. It doesn't mean that you have to go to seminary or not. But most of the seminaries in this country that I have looked up have moved to the left. They have moved some of the ones that um, even family members that I have gone to. I question their statements. I question the things that they're teaching kids. I question some of the things that are said by the presidents of the college. Many of them are accredited by the same people that accredit U of A, ASU, NAU. And so you have to use some of the same curriculum. Well, how can the Bible ever fit into U of A, ASU? It cannot. It will not. So when we start to... Um, mix and marry, if you will, university with pastoral seminary, we have a huge problem here. So once again, it's not to say that a Bible college someplace couldn't be something that helps a, a pastor learn, but a pastor should go intern at a church. A pastor should be discipled by a pastor. That's how Jesus did it. That's how the disciples did it. They discipled one another. He didn't tell them, hey, you guys need to go to rabbinical school before you can. You're a fisherman, Peter. You stink uh, like fish, and you guys have cuss mouths, so go. Because they did. They were, they were, I mean, we say swear like a sailor, but we're talking about, you know, if you've watched the fishing shows, every other word's a bleep. Jesus pulled those guys. He didn't go, go get cleaned up in seminary real quick or rabbinical school, and then come and follow me. He said, come and follow me. Because you're going to learn when you follow God how to feed God's sheep. That's what he said to him. And and one of the last things that Jesus said to to Peter in the book of John was feed those sheep, feed the little ones, feed those lambs, feed the sheep. Peter. So there's all these things that are added. There's all these things that they believed and now in our world that we're told we have to go do or you have to do this. The only way you can go into this world is to, you have to go to to get this degree or you have to be doing this. And we add to the tab. We add to Christ. It's Jesus plus nothing. That's how we get saved. That's how we as Christians follow after God, not through other ways. And uh, in verse 17, he says, um, well, let me go to 16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There are people... There were in their day and there are in our day that say that you have to do this and that. One of the things this pastor that I talked to uh, in California said to me is, oh, you have to do the Lent calendar. You have to preach through the Lent calendar. You have to preach through all the festivals. You have to do all this. I'm like, where's the freedom in that? Like, where's the freedom where you can, like God puts a message on your heart? Uh, not if it's during Lent. Not if it's during the, the Advent season or not if it's during um, Easter. You, you can't do that. You got to do this or you got to do that. There's no list in the New Testament. There's freedom in Christ. There's, there's a law. Yes, absolutely there's a law. And the Ten Commandments are not completely like, oh, we don't have to listen to any of it. No, but the law is a continual teacher that tells you and I we can't do it. The law continually, when I struggle with some, something in the law, continually I go, man, Jesus, you're the one that, you're the one that accomplished it. You're the one that, that fulfilled it, not me. It's this constant tutor. He said, and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. 
Once again, it's a very difficult thing. Many young Christians are cheated out of the joy of simply delighting in God. They are. They're given a huge thing of, oh, you got to do this. Here's a book. You have to read these 10 books. Um, you have to go to Bible study five times a week. You have to do all these things. And they're like, I just wanted to get to know Jesus. Like, I just wanted to talk to Jesus. I just wanted to pray. I just wanted to, at my own home, I just wanted to sing. I have a horrible voice. I just wanted to sing out to him. Well, that's great, but you need to go through these things. No, you don't. That's not what the Lord said. That's what you said or what this institution said or what the seminary said. Seminaries were started under a very different premise than they are their, their duty today. Very, very different. You can go, if you're a 19-year-old, 18-year-old, post-high school person, um, and you want to go study something in the religious field, you can learn more from a guy like Mike Winger than you can from any seminary that's out there. You can learn so much. We have so many resources on the internet. Mike Winger is just one of uh, a ton of great teachers. But he's a guy who, when I watch him, he rightly divides the word. doesn't matter what it is. You take the most controversial topic of our day and go, ooh, you're going to handle that? Ooh, you're going to take on that? You're going to take on that word? Perfectly divides the, the, the word. Not that, not that Mike is perfect, but a very, very credible Bible teacher. And I don't know this for a fact, but I'd be shocked if he went to a seminary in the United States of America. But he's got hundreds, maybe even thousands of videos. A person that has a question about something can go and get that. 200 years ago, not so much. Very, very difficult to get information back in the day. So in verse 20, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations, rules and regs? Once again, all the rules that the student life guide had. Some of them were fine rules. Some of them were really good rules. They were, hey, that's a really good idea for us. Hey, don't go with your girlfriend into your dorm room. Probably a really good idea. A lot of moody kids probably needed to listen to that. But it, it's not like that was the only rule. There were other rules that you're like, you got to be kidding me. Like, why would we agree to this? Oh, sorry, you already signed it. Well, we all were led to believe that we needed this in order to be youth pastors. And most of us were youth pastors. It was, it was half youth pastors, half missionaries um, that were in my um, class that I was at. But pride is incredibly destructive. It's also incredibly deceptive. Christ is the head of the church. We have no nourishment if we are not plugged into the head. I mean, I know this is kind of a weird thing, but like, People don't walk around without their head. They can't. The head is where it starts. Christ is the head. We are the bride of Christ. We are, we are unionized, if you will, with Christ when we come to him. But he is in charge. His word stands. And so anybody that tries to put the Bible in sort of a confusing gray area or be like, eh, I don't know if we can trust it anymore. Run from that school. Run from that church. I told you guys last week, there's a lot of progressive uh, Christianity seeping into churches with well-known names. That's interesting. Didn't Jesus say something about a big name in Revelation? Something along the lines of, you have a name that you're alive but you're dead. Like Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians. These names did not start out bad. John the Baptist is not a bad guy. But some of the Baptist churches that are ripping his name off are giving him a bad name. 
D.L. Moody was a Methodist, the guy that started the college, a great guy. Methodist church, ooh, can't find that many that are preaching the word these days. Very scary. And I could go on with the names. Jesus told us this was going to happen. He told, I mean, every single thing. It's just in the information age, it seems like a lot of the things that he said in Matthew are happening like in the last three years. It's crazy how, how right God is. That's funny, isn't it? It's just crazy how right God is. Let God be right and man be wrong. Christ is the head. These, uh, once again, I want to read verse 20 again. He says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concerns which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have the appearance of wisdom in in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. One of the reasons Jesus didn't tell these guys to go to rabbinical school, some of the schools that were in Jerusalem, is because the Pharisees had mastered those schools. And the Pharisees were so opposed to Jesus. They were so opposed to grace. Grace was not, they would, I don't even know if those guys could define grace. And they were brilliant. They knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. But when you and I see the doctrines of men, what people put out there, the rules that they tell us we have to follow, the commandments and the doctrines of men, people have the ability to do some really cool stuff. It's true. There are some rules and regs that I love to follow. I love that it's illegal for people to just shoot me because they disagree with me. I love that rule. It's awesome. And then there's other rules I don't like so much. At times, people, some of the things they say seem truly humble. At the very same time, they could do the most wicked things that have ever been done. I read, a, I read something from you, uh, the book, The Rest of the Gospel, a few weeks back, and one of the things that that author, Dan Stone, um, said is that even though I have this new nature, he goes, when left in the right situation, I can do something incredibly evil. And I was reading a little bit about Hitler and some of the German followers. Hitler really tapped into a period of time where German nationalism was on the downside. And, and I don't know, I don't pretend to be a historian. I'm, I'm really not. I read, I read a lot of these types of things, but I don't read like these books that I can't understand every other word. But he tapped into not a politic, not a left or a right. He tapped into something that really struck a visceral part of people. And as they trusted in him, he then took them down a road that we all know was about as brutal as has ever been. But there were probably people who met him 10 years before this that thought, eh, he's harmless. He's a harmless guy. Seems like he's got some good ideas. There's probably people who thought that. And then those very same people, 15 years later, were doing horrific things to Jewish people because he had convinced them after he had them wrapped around his finger that these people are not even human. People can do some really cool stuff and then they can take you down to the bowels of hell like he did an entire country. That country's name 
was in the toilet for the longest time after that. And it's because when people don't listen to God, they can be drifted anywhere. People can be, through the most charming and amazing people, they can be taken down a path that they never would have believed a few years before that. So a couple of things um, I want to read. Um, I want to read a, a cool story to kind of end this, but it's not to say that rules and regulations are bad in and of themselves because Paul said, hey, the law's not a bad thing. The law's like a tutor for me. The law's like a, it's like a yardstick that tells me, hey, you're not going to be God. And I say that because some people think that they are. They really do. They act just like they are. Some people in this society are telling people that they are God. I've heard that more than once this week from, from celebrities. It's not that they're bad. In a civilized society, there have to be some. Absolutely, there have to be some. But would you be willing to bet there's a lot more on the books than there was 100 years ago? Well, we all know that. There's a lot more on the books than there were three years ago. As it pertains to the law in the Old Testament, the law was a tutor. It was to help me realize I need a deliverer. I'm not sufficient. I'm not enough. I am not perfect. Once Jesus said it is finished, I needed to look at him and not back to the law, which I cannot keep. It's to look forward at Christ. The law was to go, man, like if I was an Israelite back then, I'd be looking at this going, God, where's the break? I need help, man. I need some serious help. I don't have enough animals. I don't have enough money to do what I'm supposed to do in terms of sacrifice to really make myself. That's why God allowed the day of atonement. He allowed this day where it would be covered. Everything that wasn't covered would be covered. So once again, it's not to say that rules and regulations are bad. But we have more rules and regulations now in this country than ever before. Are people getting better? Is the country getting better? Are we, are we as a world just on a way better track than we were 50, 100, 300 years back? Some would say, oh, yes, we are. Yes, we are. We're absolutely, we are so much better. I go, talk to the people in Memphis. Just do any research on Memphis from 1960 and before and right now. People are terrified. Doesn't matter. I'm not talking about a specific race because I've been watching stuff because there's been a lot of news coming out of Memphis this last week. And people are terrified. One guy said, it doesn't matter where you live in the town. It's unsafe. Memphis. I love that city. I went to that city years and years ago for the first time. I love Memphis. It's beautiful. I love the name. I love the river. I love the buildings. Um, I love some of the old homes there. Uh, the old studio that Elvis uh, recorded in, me and Shannon went to a few years back. I love the charm. Beale Street, I love it all. But, man, it is, I'd have to think twice if I was going to take a family vacation there right now. Tons of rules. More rules now than ever before. Do you know that they have... Uh, almost the same population as this town, and they have three times the cops we have. And they say they need 2,500. We have 500-ish. They have 1,600-ish. They say they need 2,500. And everybody else in Memphis says there's nowhere near enough police. Why? Because people are getting better? Oh, thank God we have more rules and laws. Is anybody actually listening to them? No, they're not. Because people don't keep laws. <laughs> they break them. I want, to, I want to close with this uh, story. Um, it's, it's a really cool story about this, this whole idea. A story is told of a man 
anxious to make himself fit to the enter fit like good enough to enter the presence of God awakened to a sense of the emptiness of a life of worldly pleasure he fled from the city to the desert and made his home in a cave of the rocks there he practiced the great plainness and hoped through prayer and penance to reach the place where he would be acceptable to God hearing of another hermit who was reputed to be very holy and devout, the man took his staff and made a long, wearisome journey across the desert in order to interview him and learn from him how to find peace with God. In answer to the man's agonized questions, the aged hermit said, Take that staff, that dry rod which is in your hand, and plant it in the desert soil. Water it daily, offering fervent prayers as you do so. And when it bursts into leaf and bloom, you will know that you have made your peace with God. Rejoicing that at last he had what seemed like authoritative instruction in regard to the greatest of all ventures, the man hastened back to the cave, planted his rod uh, as he had been told to do so. For long, weary days, weeks, and months, he faithfully watered the dry stick and prayed for the hour when the token of his acceptance would be given. He continued this routine until at last one day in utter despair and brokenness of spirit, weakened by fasting and sick with longing for the apparently unattainable. He exclaimed bitterly, it is all no use. I am no better today than I was when I first came to the desert. The fact is I am just like this dry stick myself. It needs life before there can be leaves and fruit. I need life, for I am dead in my sins and cannot produce fruit for God. And then it seemed as though a voice within said, at last you have learned the lesson that the old hermit hermit meant to teach you. It is because you are dead and have no strength or power in yourself that you must turn to Christ alone and find life and peace in him. We sing that song in Christ alone. Guys, that is the Christian walk. It's in Christ alone. It doesn't mean that God won't give you uh, blessings and friendships and people that challenge you and people that help you and sharpen you. That's awesome. But the day that it becomes something on par with what he did for you is the day you are way off track. The Bible is God's word. That, it, that is the authority we have on this, on this earth. The Holy Spirit absolutely will teach you, absolutely as you spend time with God, he will absolutely grow you in the faith. You don't have to go to a school to do that. You don't have to go to a program to do that. You can do that right here, right now, in your house, in your car. You can plug into the vine, as this old guy found. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your truth. God, in a world where it is just so confusing, it is so off balance, Uh, to try and find any real wisdom outside in this world. God, it is so difficult when you hear what people are pushing, what churches are sometimes pushing nowadays, Lord, that we just need you. God, that you are enough. The Passover lamb that died on the cross and rose again, the song we sing, Jesus Loves Me, God, you are enough. Your relationship with us is enough to sustain us in this life and to bring us to heaven one day. God, we thank you for doing that for us. We thank you for grace. God, we need it every hour. In Jesus' name, amen.